Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Welcome to the latest edition of the Cal Podcast with me, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Llewellyn Usher. Today's guest is Lieutenant General Rowley Walker. Commissioned into the Irish Guards in 1993, General Walker served as a platoon commander before joining the Special Air Service in 1997, where he saw active service around the globe. Following Advanced Staff College in 2009, he was selected to command the Grenadier Guards, with whom he deployed to Afghanistan in 2010. Promoted into the General Staff in 2011, he commanded 12th Armoured Infantry Brigade from 2013 to 2015, and subsequently held staff appointments at Army Headquarters and the Ministry of Defence. Appointed Major General in 2017, his last appointment was as Director Special Forces before he took up his current position as Deputy Chief of Defence Staff, Military Strategy and Operations at the Ministry of Defence on promotion to Lieutenant General in April 2021. Welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk to us on what I know is an incredibly busy job. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. Uh, so, so we'll, we'll you know, obviously very interested to hear, um, you know, your formative years and um, get an understanding of the experiences you've had and how that's shaped you as a leader throughout your career to, to where you are now. But perhaps before we, before we talk about that, I might ask you uh, very specifically, what, what does leadership mean to you? In a, in a sentence? I think the army is on something with its description of command, leadership and management and seeing them as a, as a three-way thing, uh, as a triumvirate. Because command, and there's a doctrinal definition, is an authority vested in an individual for, I think, the coordination of military forces assigned to them. So that is an authority. It has legal implications and is a thing. And it has to be taken very seriously. Leadership is an approach, which I'll come back to. And I think management is a process. And you've got to do all three in a way that speaks to the needs of the organization you're responsible for, the people you're responsible for. Because I guess my experience of it is your responsibility as a leader, as a commander in the military context is to earn the trust and confidence of those for whom you are responsible to the point where they are prepared to do difficult things in difficult circumstances where their instincts may be not to do it. And we're talking specifically about combat and to be as a leader, to be prepared to use that trust and confidence to achieve the mission you've been set to the satisfaction of your superiors. And they need to have trust and confidence that you can do what they need you to do. So it goes up and down. And to my mind, leadership, therefore, in a single sentence, is about earning and using trust and confidence for the purpose of the mission. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the kind of the, the critical piece there, isn't it, about how do you generate or how do you develop trust? Do you think that's... You know the, the 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 classic image of the the young commander leading right from the front, or is that something a bit more complex and nuanced, especially as you get more senior? I, I think it's um, I think it's obviously it's nuanced. Obviously, it changes in the context, but I think at its heart, it is about having. And I guess here's here's the little secret um, that I offer you when I was a brigade commander and in fact when I was a battle group commander the way I've written or structured my appraisal reporting of my subordinates 
is to try and judge three things and to report on those. The firstly is, as a leader, commander, um, has that officer, has the organization they're responsible for succeeded in an objective way? Because if they have, then that leader gets the credit. And if they haven't performed collectively, then um, he doesn't get the credit. Then I try and judge the subject matter expertise of that officer. You know, their special to arm competence. So when I was a brigade commander, you know, was the armored cavalry commanding officer really good at armored cavalry tactics? Did he, in this particular case, really understand formation tactics such that he was advising me on formation level operations? Whereas if I looked at the armored infantry battle group commanders, or the armor battle group commanders, you know, were they the best in class? Did they really understand their responsibilities for armored and armored infantry tactics at a battle group level? And then the third thing, which I gave extra weighting to, was the command climate that those officers generated. I would get to that by going down at least two or three levels, often using command sergeant majors, junior officers in my brigade headquarters and others to do that climate assessment approach is, is the environment in that organization one which is conducive to trust and confidence in their leaders. So when under pressure, they will do difficult things that are against their instincts to do, and they're gonna do them in a safe way. Um, so I guess that's the judgment. I think I've carried that through from my time as a battle commander, brigade commander, certainly in my time as director of special forces is i do look at my subordinates through those prisms is what they do working the organization they're responsible for do they actually know what their special to arm expertise is and are they as good at it as they should be and then thirdly are they setting an example that promotes trust and confidence yeah uh, and you you very clearly you naturally talk at it from the from the perspective or through the prism of command at the senior level, but but that's applicability of, of what you're saying as looking at viewing the the sort of leadership abilities of our commanders or in in you know, as officers and the applicability of that down to the most junior level and, and the in the section commander. It's true. When I was commanding tour brigade, I was responsible for the collector training exercises. And it struck me watching battle groups training, um, so CT3 into CT4, that this trust and confidence thing is the most formative time is in collective training. And I, I could see, I really admired the, the commanders who thought carefully in training about the reality and practicality of husbanding combat power in times of combat. And I also, I, I worried about those commanders who were profligate in training with their combat power, principally in the world of, of dismounted close combat, is people. And those that for whom they, they succeeded in their mission on the plains in Canada, on the prairie, but the price of that was a completely littered battlefield of, you know, flashing vehicles and, you know, dead 
tezzed dead mm. uh, uh, soldiers, but it was okay because we succeeded in the mission. <laughs> and thinking that, realizing that all of those dead tank commanders were probably looking up at their chain of command and saying, well, if you think that's how we're going to do it on the day, and we're going to do it, then think again. What they weren't necessarily doing was building trust and confidence in the judgment of their, their commanders, that they were going to be used in the right way, in the best possible way, um, that meant that they were husbanding their combat power for the long haul. And it was those battle groups where I saw, you know, where, where those commanders were exercising good judgment, even in an exercise scenario, you could see the junior commanders flourishing and responding because they really believed that they were in competent hands. And as a consequence of that, the loyalty was being formed in training. If I then sort of jump back in time in Afghanistan, my experience there was, was that the, the sort of dark truth to leadership is, and this does go down to the, the most junior levels, that if you build that trust and confidence, which is often referred to as kind of love, it's almost, you know, you have created those incredible bonds between um, junior leaders and their soldiers. But the, the demand on the junior officer or the junior section commander is they must be prepared to use that resource to achieve their mission. And that means risking it to death and injury. And that's, that's a real onus of responsibility to take the thing that you've created, nurtured, and you have a genuine feeling of love for, and then risk it all for the purposes of the mission you've been given. And unless you're prepared to do that at the very lowest levels, all the way to the very highest levels, then I don't think you're satisfying your responsibilities under mission command. The better you are, I think, at building that trust and confidence and loyalty, which is about your subordinates having competence in your ability to do your job so that they can do theirs in the best possible way. Effectively, General, what we're perhaps talking about is um, the ability to, to ensure that your people trust you enough that when you're decision-making, they trust your judgment in what they're asking you to do and not to take unnecessary risk, accepting of the fact that we are in, in an inherently risky business. Yes. And if I go back to my experience in the world of special forces, where the, you're absolutely calibrating your leadership to the people that you're responsible for, but given the stakes at play and the people we were dealing with, you know, one's subordinates who were generally you know, more senior, older, more experienced, they were the ones that were most challenging if they thought your judgment was wrong. Because the truth was they were not prepared to follow you if they believed that what you were about to do was wrong-headed or badly conceived or unsafe in terms of a concept of operations. And the motivation was, was, was not to say no but their motivation was to come to the conversation to make sure that it was safe and that we had taken every measure to de-risk the chances of it going wrong and that we would achieve the mission in the most efficient way possible with the least amount of unintended consequences from the action. 
So it was it was positive, but highly critical judgment being applied. And I, I had that experience as a very, very junior officer, which I inevitably has shaped how I then went on to command a battle group. Because although I wasn't seeing the same strength of feeling about my competence being exposed in an open forum, I knew that's what they were thinking. And therefore, as a brigade commander going into the training of battle groups, and even as a divisional chief of staff, where I was responsible for the training of brigades to go to Afghanistan, the Task Force Helmand Brigades, that's what I was, I'm looking to see whether the relationship between the subordinate and the leader is one that is based on mutual trust and confidence in judgment and special to arm expertise. You know, that, that, that's, that's where I, that's how I formed this position I've, I think I've tried to articulate, um, formed in my experience in the Special Forces, but then applied as best as possible, I think, to combined arms formations. And I think you, you've definitely touched on something that we are you know, certainly in the, in the centre of army leadership looking at and are you know, examining our doctrine about how we lead and how we inculcate into, the, into our subordinates the ability to challenge thinking, but in a constructive way that ultimately leads to a better outcome on, on the battlefield or for the mission, so that we not only do we stop the, the idea of the loneliness of command and the isolation of decision-making, when actually you're bringing the team in to be able to be part of that process of coming up with a, with a plan, but also to be able to, to, to absolutely challenge a decision that might be unlawful, or it might be detrimental to the force, or indeed, it just might not be the right thing to do at that time. I think that's a really, really critical point that you're making. They must challenge something they believe is unlawful. Yeah. But they have an obligation. We all have an individual obligation if we believe something is unlawful. No question. And that sense of, of it being a collective endeavor, you're in it together, hmm. you're the team that's on point, it's fallen to you at this time in this place to do something. You all benefit if it goes well, and you all suffer if it goes wrong. So it's a collective responsibility. I think it's mm. a really interesting thing you're trying to embed into leadership. I think it's right. I think it's very strong in my experience. It, it, it was extremely strong in the business of special operations and that may be because of the peculiar circumstances of mm. of the type of missions you're being asked to do not not because they require superior skills or something but it's the context in which those mm. operations are being carried out often they're very normal military tasks it's just the environment you're doing it in is acutely sensitive and therefore profile and posture is absolutely at the heart of the approach. But I, I would like to circle back to this point that by building this sense of a collective endeavor and a team, trust and loyalty, love within the team, which, is, which gives you that small team cohesion, the command responsibility on the leader, though, is he or she must be prepared to use that resource and risk it all 
in pursuit of the mission, mm. if that is what it takes. That, I'm not sure, can be a collective decision. No, there's still an onus of responsibility on the commander. Yeah, and that starts at our most junior level of command. So in the infantry example, that is the section commander. Yeah. So it's so in- hardest to do, but it's so important that that elevation into your first proper command appointment, that that principle is established and understood and is the basis of their command authority and that they get the opportunity to exercise command authority both in training, in barracks, and on operations. And it's not yeah. that is preserved on operations. And mm. otherwise, you don't have that small team cohesion. Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps there's that we, we sometimes forget, I think, that you know, one's own experience of commanding uh, a, a battle group and, and, and junior as in junior command points. We sometimes think of command or leadership in camp and on operations as two distinct elements of our role rather than being synonymous and actually actually if one looks at everything from an operational prism about what one does in camp uh, and doing the basics well in camp are as applicable and actually reinforce what you then therefore go on to do on operations is 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 really important at the very lowest level yes the connection between command and leadership is a really important one here because if you're gonna if leadership is a style and approach of how you build the resource that enables you to achieve the missions that you're given, then being really clear on what your command responsibilities are, I think helps Mm. generate that. So I think, again, it's in the army doctrine, um, it certainly was, um, the first responsibility of a commander is to make decisions. That's actually what you're paid to do as a commander. You make the decision, you use your section, platoon, squadron, whatever it is, to achieve what you decided to do. Mm. <laughs> um, so be really clear, your job is, in the first instance, is to make a decision. And your job is to try and make it as good a decision as you possibly can under the circumstances. Yeah. And my personal experience is the more you can talk to people, the easier the decision, the right decision is. Yeah. There are very, very few situations that I've ever faced where it might have been, it might have seemed an impossible decision for me to make, but for someone somewhere, it was an easy decision. And what I had to do was find that person to reassure me that actually this is an easy decision to make and we can make it and it's going to be safe. And it's yeah, gonna- that's really interesting. And it all it ties together a bit about inclusive inclusive decision-making, but responsibility for the, de- the decision that is made resting on the shoulders of the commander. With, with that in mind, sir, you, you, when you reflect back uh, as a young platoon commander in the Irish Guards, what might the challenges of leading guards as a young platoon commander have prepared you for, for leading uh, at the higher and now highest levels? I think my experience as a platoon commander, I mean, I don't think I was a very good platoon commander because I think I was keen, perhaps too keen. I was inevitably very naive and I had uh, some experiences where I wanted sort of to do things uh, and it was patently clear that some good old mix thought this was the stupidest thing in the world. And I learned 
very quickly what it feels like when <laughs> you have people that that are experts at consent and evade. <laughs> and the real frustration was the sort of enthusiasm I brought to being a fresh platoon commander hit the reality of uh, <laughs> of consent and evade. And it could have been very demoralizing. I mean, it wasn't consequential. It was low level platoon training and barracks, that sort of stuff. But I do remember having my my ego seriously dented um, that I couldn't even organize a navigation exercise um, after all the training that I had. I guess the most formative leadership, you know, commander leadership was actually when I went on uh, an attachment very early on in my in my career. I joined the Scots Guards for, a, for an emergency tour in Northern Ireland and I commanded a multiple, so sort of 12 to 14 man team and of course, that was that was an operations rural patrolling. We were in East Tyrone at the time, and I realised, you know, that was when it struck me that, that my job was to make decisions. And I, I was the least experienced of everybody. The Scots Guards had done many tours in Northern Ireland at the time. The platoon sergeant, you know, was was an extremely experienced Northern Ireland hand. So, you know, it's apparent to me that I I had the least amount of experience, but at the um, at the start of the day and at the end of the day, I was responsible for making the decisions about where we went, how we did it, what formations we adopted whilst we were patrolling, where we stopped, where we, how long we did things for, and that was that was on me. They all played to what they were there responsible for. I did my job, they did their job, and the multiple performed. So that's probably the most formative, and that's what I then took on. And I think I was very lucky because and then went on to uh, on secondment to the SES as a troop commander. So I, I basically did 10 years, I think, from being a platoon commander, being a recce platoon commander, and being a troop commander of that very low level of command. And therefore, I got a lot of chance after, I think, an enthusiastic but rubbish start. I think I, I, I might have... I might have cracked some of it by the time I, I sort of got to promotion to, um, you know, age 30 promotion to major and that's kind of when I stopped commanding troops or platoons yeah it's very clear that sort of you you're 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 the point you made earlier on almost about knowing your people um and trusting them to do the jobs that they are individually capable of doing or maybe even are entrusted with themselves and as a platoon commander you know trusting your section commanders and and actually enacting mission command is 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 really clear you also touched very briefly on perhaps as a young platoon commander not getting something right. And you know, this is something that we're starting to look at in a lot more detail about learning from our mistakes, learning from failure. And um, one might argue that you know failure is a mistake made a, a number of times, but actually by learning from failure, do you think that is actually more lasting than learning from our successes? Yes, because it's searing. And it mm -hmm. hurts and it stings. As long as we learn. Yeah. The most valuable lesson I have learned as a commander was from a failed operation that I led. Um, in that, we failed to, it was a raid. We failed to um, detain the subjects of interest. And we failed because I had become so involved in the planning that. The, the, my, I lost my objectiveness because I so wanted 
this raid to succeed, that I had become blind to the situation changing. We had some very objective criteria, criteria triggers that needed to be met in order to launch the mission so that we had high confidence that the subjects of interest would be where we thought they were going to be at the time that we thought they were going to be there. But as we got closer to the event, because I was so invested in the operation being a success, I began to erode my judgment on the indicators and warnings. So I started to see what I wanted to see in the reporting, all of which validated my preconceived idea that this was going to happen. We launched, we didn't find the subjects of interest. It, nobody got hurt. We all got out, but it was a, it was a fiasco of an operation because we created a lot of noise and a lot of problems for the in-place battle group. The consequence management of this was quite serious and we had nothing to show for it. The lesson I took from that as a commander, particularly in this time as, a, uh, as I went into being a battle group commander, is you've got to give your guidance for the effects to be achieved. You've got to trust your subordinates to play their part in the planning cycle. And then as the commander, the decision maker, you have to stay one step removed to make sure you are able to discern whether this is still the right thing to be doing, doing it in the right way. Um, and I took that lesson into um, my time as a battle group commander, where the stakes were pretty high in Afghanistan, and configured, made sure I've always had my headquarters organized along those ways. Um, and that I don't, I, and it comes back to your earlier question, I don't start doing my subordinates job for them. Um, I have to try and stay one step removed in order to see the broader context that we're doing it. I probably haven't explained that very well, but that, that, was, that was a very, very important lesson for me of how I nearly got it very, very wrong. I think we were lucky that the consequence was a lot of noise and disturbance rather than anything more profound in terms of loss of life or mm. loss of But to me, that was a near miss. And I told myself I would never put myself in that position again, where I got so close to it that I was wishing it, to willing it to happen for the mm. sake of it happening, not because it was about clarity on, is it going to work or not? Is mm. it the right thing to be doing at this particular time, given what we know now? That's very candid of you to be, yeah, well, it's very, very honest for you to be so candid about learning from a, you know, many would, many would suggest that it was, uh, you know, a, 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 um, a, um, it still achieved perhaps some, some, something, or it still achieved, but no, 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 there was no loss of life or anything like that. So, you know, John, that's really, really fascinating to hear how you've adapted from your own personal perception of where you might have failed in what you wanted to achieve or indeed how you maybe led something uh, as you've sort of you, you touched on sort of coming back to the to the field army as a battalion commander how did you have to adapt your operating practices from uh working in perhaps an area where there was significant degrees of ambiguity and um you know working at a very often strategic 
objective level to dealing with once again you know uh the the spread of age and experience that one rightly has in a in an infantry battalion where you have very young guardsmen who really need very firm hands-on leadership but also you do have those elements of the, the organization which are incredibly experienced and indeed in some areas of, of the senior elements of the battalion at times more experienced than you are in in certain aspects of what they're trying to achieve how do you do you how did you bring yourself back into that sort of um, mindset of who, how you did, did it? Did it change your leadership or is it something you just ran with? Um, I think I was lucky when I took command of the Grenadiers because, you know, the, the day I took command of the Grenadiers is the day I became a Grenadier. So I had no previous experience. You know, I had exchanged my commission from the Irish Guards into the Grenadiers, having been selected to command. So I came in and on, on the first day, I remember the Sergeant Major, the Regimental Sergeant Major, um, a man called Daz Chant. Um, he was the first one I met when I walked into the orderly room and he shut the door and we had the candid conversation, but he welcomed me. I mean, he was, he was, uh, he was a larger than life character. And his point to me was, this was a, a really good thing for the Grenadiers because I had no previous history, therefore I had no favourites, I had no biases, I hadn't come up through the system, and therefore everybody got a fresh start. Mm. It was a black sheet, and everybody knew that that was that. Now, we also had a real focus, because we were off to Afghanistan in a matter of months, and we were pretty well straight into the pre-employment training. So there was easy again, because nobody was worrying about whether I was wearing the right button or you know, I knew the regimental tradition, that or that, because actually what they were focused on was getting to Afghanistan, doing the job. They'd already done one tour. This was going to be their second. There was a lot of knowledge about what we were heading into. So there was a kind of, it was it was an easy thing for me to come in as an outsider and, and approach it. What I had to do, though, before arriving was try and understand the DNA of this particular unit. It had been around for 350 years. Um, the Grenadiers is a household name. It's um, it, it had a reputation, um, it had a history, and I needed to understand the DNA. I needed to understand what it was that motivated people to join the Grenadier Guards as opposed to any other Guards regiment or any other regiment, frankly, and what it was about the Grenadiers that meant that they had the small team cohesion that is the essence of fighting power. And it's a different motive in different units because of our regimental system. And I just needed to tap into and try and understand what it was that made fighting power work in the context of the Grenadier Guards. My conclusion was that, and it was really by observation, I think, um, was that the, the strength of feeling and the sense of responsibility and destiny for upholding 350 years of military service in a regiment that had fought in every single military campaign that the British Army had been involved in uh, since, uh, since the English Civil War, almost. You know, that is a weight of responsibility. That was felt most keenly in the sergeant's mess. They were the upholders of this extraordinary sense of responsibility to carry on in the very best traditions of the British Grenadiers. The way that played itself out was that they had a very, very discerning judgment on whether their young officers were up to the mark or not. And they felt it was their responsibility to make sure their young officers carried themselves 
in a way that was appropriate. That you could see in the seriousness with which our young officers took their engagements with their non-commissioned officers and with their guardsmen, because they knew that they were being judged, I think, by the weight of history that the sergeants mess felt. I don't think it was onerous or heavy, but where there was competence in junior officers, you could see it was rewarded with this loyalty that I talked about at the start and a confidence um, and really unlimited sort of loyalty from the subordinates to their leader. And realizing that's that's kind of what that's what the grenade was. How do I tap into that so that this small team cohesion really drives in some good fighting power so that they're able to sustain themselves and husband their combat power over a six-month tour for which we had no idea what was actually coming our way. So I guess the short version of what I've just um, waffled on about there is I think you need to understand the, the essence of fighting power in that particular context. And having started my life in the Irish Guards, where I understood how, I think I understood how it worked there. My time in the SAS, where it was different, still a small Asian, still a regimental system, but it, it was driving on different, slightly different DNA, but understand the DNA and then use that to, to go about your business. And then, and then lastly, with the Grenadiers, it's, it's more difficult once you're into formation command because, you know, formations don't have the DNA of the regimental system. You know, Trial Brigade is Trial Brigade. It's a consist of a whole load of different regiments. The regiments come in and out. The units come in and out. You've mm. got to somehow, somehow tap into a collective identity, but it's not nearly as strong as that that is generated out of the regimental system. Likewise, when I was DSF, is realizing you, you, can't, you can't treat one regiment in the same way that you treat another. You need to understand what makes it tick and then play to that. Yeah. That to me is the difference when you go out of being a regimental, at a regimental service into formation command is got to let the regiments be their own characters and you're trying to get the best of them rather than trying to create a single identity around a brigade, mm. um, which is missing. The, my predecessor uh, in Toll Brigade, Doug Chalmers, um, gave me some really good advice. Brilliant officer. I, I followed him in. Nad Ali followed him into 3DIV, Chief Star followed him into Toro Brigade and then followed him into the MSO job here. Um, and, um, you know, really good observer and somebody you should probably talk to on a, on a podcast now that he's kind of out of the military and um, can reflect back on it. But his advice to me as a brigade commander, he said, really, it's really simple. Just go and have lunch with the officers in the mess. And you'll, 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 you'll understand what makes them tick. Firstly, do they come together and have lunch? How do they do it? Um, and um, you'll see all the officers. And, and you're sort of almost getting a sense of the unit, because if you can understand the officers, the chances are you'll, you know, that's kind of like a wholesale mm. of, of them. Um, and I, I kind of reflected on that as a brigade commander a lot. So the other thing I did as a battle group commander, sorry, I mean, it's a slightly sort of long way around. The other thing I did as a battle group commander very consciously was, and this may sound uh, slightly heretical, is I felt my, my responsibility was to make sure my junior officers were up to the mark. I figured that if, if the platoon commanders were doing 
you know, had the best possible chance to flourish, then you get you get everything else that follows. Yeah. <laughs> sergeant's mess in the grenadier context, the reasons like you said, you get the sergeant's mess. That's the center of gravity. And from them, through them, you get the guardsmen. And the temptation is there is to almost, and your two commanders are the least experienced. Um, and therefore, probably where you hold the greatest risk when it comes to special to armed competence, uh, confidence in decision making, experience under pressure, because mm. they're the most inexperienced. But and the temptation is is to sort of not trust them and and sort of go beyond and and appeal either to the very experienced senior non-commissioned officers. But unless you grow your junior officers, I just don't think you get the wholesale collective. Of fighting power in mm. a battle group. So particular attention I made, I think, on, on that. I was very lucky, I had a very good cohort, um, many of whom are still serving. So um, that, that was a sort of a, a thing, a very specific conscious decision I made was to invest more time in my junior officers than say I would do in my senior non-commissioned officers um, or junior non-commissioned officers. Um, yeah. You've touched on a really interesting point, which probably plays into where you sit now. So we might leapfrog forward from battle group, gently hopping through brigade command to where you are now. But you talked about the point of, of fostering identity and purpose. And when you're working in the uh, single service space, and very specifically within a battle group, and then you, 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 you extrapolate that out, where you, where you are now, how do you, or how does one balance uh, an inclusive force of what, what of a maybe joint or even multinational force deploying uh, on an operation, with perhaps nuanced caveats from either an individual service or certainly an individual nation, and, and we saw that in Afghanistan, and we've had previous speakers on the podcast talk about you know countries deploying but with national caveats to a NATO mission. How as a commander now and a, and, a, and a senior leader, strategic leader, how do you balance those individual aims with the purpose of the joint force? So first thing is I'm not a commander in this job. So I am a, a sort of deputy chief of defence staff for military strategy operations. So um, I am one of three deputy chiefs of defence staff. Um, one does people, chief defence personnel, and one does military capability. Um, there's also chief defence intelligence in the building here, but that's a, a functional responsibility. So, mm -hmm. uh, so I work on a daily basis on behalf of the Chief of Defence for um, ensuring that the military instrument is, is integrated in a safe and effective way as an instrument of national power. So it's making sure we're used um, in the right way by the government. And I'm trying to ensure that the Chief of Defence Staff, as the government's military advisor, is giving the best possible military advice to the government. That's principally to the Defence Secretary in the building here, but also to the Prime Minister and to the National Security Council, which is a sort of cabinet committee of variable geometry, but it's a cabinet committee. And the Chief of Defence Staff, who's not a member of the National Security Council, but as a, is an advisor, goes to the NSC, he's giving the best possible um, advice. I guess to answer your question um, here is I am uh, I'm trying to do three things in this job, which perhaps reflects the strategic level you're talking at or the military strategic level. The first is to make sure that 
on a daily basis on issues that have a bearing on our national security that the political leadership and the military leadership are aligned. They may not agree because they come from different perspectives, but they are at least aligned on a correct characterization of what is having an impact on our, on our national security and that they are aligned on what we're going to do about it. Even if they are disagreeing, mm. it could be A or it could be B, the most important thing is that they're not talking past each other. So aligning the political and the military, and that at its most simple, that is making sure that, I, in my opinion, the Chief of Defence Staff and the Secretary of State are as one on issues. So they are giving comprehensive political military advice to the um, National Security Council. And there's a role there for the Permanent Secretary um, as well, given his responsibility for policy, defence policy. The second thing that I do, um, because if you get that alignment, then a decision is easier um, at a cabinet committee level. You know, Prime Minister can make a decision because it's clear the advice he's been given. He can say yes or no. With a decision, that is the basis for action. Make sure that we have got properly defined outcomes from how the military is going to be used. And then we have explored you know, modern and creative ways of using the military in a way that husbands our power, makes best use of what limited resources we do have, um, that is just enough to get the job done, et cetera, et cetera. Now, it's in the latter bit, defining the outcomes and then working out creative ways to achieve them. It's the latter bit that I think we're in a really exciting period of our evolution, which is around the concepts of modern componency. So what we're really trying to do is draw in the expertise. It comes back to what we said right at the start is ask the audience. Mm. Answers are they've got a better idea of how to do it. So how we ask the audience, which are the components, air, maritime, land, cyberspace, and space, with the joint commanders, how we draw them into the formulation of schemes of maneuver to achieve strategic effects. That's where it's very exciting at the moment. They will therefore feel a sense of collective endeavor. They will have trust and confidence that the outcomes that we are seeking are valid, sensible, safe, lawful, etc that they have an equity in the outcome because they are helping determine the method and therefore they have a responsibility in mission command to um, achieve those effects. That's what we're, we're, we're at a sort of juncture at the moment, um, which I think is how we get down to what you're saying is how we build that cohesion at a macro level across the services within all the various disparate commands that we have and making sure that we are aligning um, both horizontally as well as vertically. That's yeah. No, I think it's, it's, that's really clear and, and you know, you've articulated that, you know, very, very clearly for everyone. I, I, if I may, so I'm conscious of the time and, and um, you know, quite how demanding your day job is. The, if I might sort of uh, penultimate question, if I may, with, with, with what you've just said in mind, noting that uh, there's an ever-increasing likelihood that we may well fight a peer or near-peer organisation or, or, or foe, 
if we're to fight a foe who's perhaps military doesn't follow a values-based set of rules where for them winning is everything and they don't subscribe to lawful practices as you rightly just said how do we balance that um, from our own perspective where we are an army specifically that is rightly embracing the importance of being an inclusive diverse organization who follows a, a rules-based process i think it's a strength that we should be using if we don't believe in our values then it's going to be quite hard to build that fighting power to defend them i think it's you know it's not it's, it's not for me to say it, I quote it, it's, it's, as many others say this, but I think, you know, we can encapsulate the situation we find ourselves in the early part of this century is that the authoritarians are getting braver and they're getting stronger. They're taking more risks. It takes the democracies to come together to respond. Otherwise, the authoritarians will keep pressing. That is exactly what is happening right now across the Euro-Atlantic. Our response has got to be calibrated. And I think we have got to expose the strategic folly of what could happen from Russia's actions today, which are seeking to undermine the very fundamentals by which Euro-Atlantic security has been secured over the last 70 years. And we must recognize that that is the object of their maneuver, is to break out of that construct, which they feel has constrained their ambitions as a world power. And in breaking out of it, they want to break up that construct. So it's pretty existential from my analysis on this. And I, I'm not sure I'm the only one that sees it that way. We may be catastrophizing, but I think it's upon us to really try and understand what's happening. The response has got to be to show in this particular case to the Russian leadership that there is a real danger that they are going to embark on a completely unnecessary war against Ukraine, which poses no threat to Russia. It's completely unnecessary. And that there is, there is no strategic objective the Russians will be able to secure that puts them in a stronger position as a consequence of starting this unnecessary war. Which is why our politicians are right to say this is a strategic mistake. They don't need to do this. So our, our response has got to be to use our strength against the mistake they're about to make and expose it. At the moment, it is all about diplomacy. Everything that we do that I'm at the moment is how do we make best use of the military instrument to support a diplomatic initiative, mm. which is exposing the strategic folly that the Russians feel they have a sense of destiny for. Because they are the ones that have got to determine it's not worth it. Any short-term gain that they think they may accrue will be more than offset by the long-term disadvantage. That's kind of how we're configuring ourselves. Um, 
does that directly ask answer questions about inclusivity and the way we are are building and driving in fundamental values into the way our military does its business probably not directly but i think it is absolutely in defense of those values that the democracies of you know, the euro atlantic area have already come tighter as a consequence of the geostrategic situation it has already driven cost on the russians because the very thing they want less of they've got more of mm. which is more americans in europe than there were before so you know, they're already paying a price that fundamentally is not in their long-term interest um so i think this is an example of the democracies closing ranks against a concerted effort to challenge the fundamentals and the the overreach i think we saw in the russian government's proposition of two new treaties was to challenge the open door policy of nato the right for any nation to determine its security arrangements you know that, mm. that real simple articulation of our values and that's what they went after they said you've got to change that and it's kind of <laughs> you know the response that went back from the americans and from nato which i think the letters have been leaked just sort of show that how how strongly we feel about that um, and what we believe in which yeah. is our values yeah yeah no general you've very clearly underlined that you know our values are critical to who we are and what we are and and ultimately what we're able to do so i'm not going to let you off the hook quite yet but i'm 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 aware that um, we've covered a vast uh, and wide-ranging chat, which has been fascinating. Um, but if I may, it's a couple of, we always finish with a, a few quick-fire questions. So if I may, sort of first and foremost, uh, who is the best leader that you've ever worked with and why? That's Chan, my SAR major, or low-level doing the basics. He was very sadly killed in Afghanistan on our tour. Um, it was a big loss. To me personally, but also to the battalion and the battle group. The story was we were on the ranges, pre-deployment training. Um, it was two o'clock in the morning. We'd been watching one of the companies doing some live firing. It was dark. We had no torches. I was going one way, I think, in a in a in a Land Rover. He was going to go another way, and we were saying good. We were saying goodbye for the night. We were going to see each other the next day, whatever it was. And in the end, there's a tradition that when a a non-commissioned officer or warrant officer. Um, finishes, they ask for Lee to come out. They salute, Santa Teresa salute, and ask for Lee to come out. So it's two in the morning, it's blowing a gale, we're on the open ranges. There is no one else around. And he salutes, ask for Lee to come out. And I said, Sergeant Major, please, if it's just us, you know, please don't feel you need to go through these formalities. And he said, Sir, if I don't do it, how can I expect anyone else to do it? We never had that conversation again. Yeah. That was the way it was to be done in that particular regiment. And that's the way it always went. The, that principle was why he volunteered to command a, took my TAC headquarters as a temporary measure whilst we waited for new troops to come in from the Theatre Reserve Battalion to temporarily take control of a patrol base with 
um, Afghan police in a, over a village that we had just sort of cleared through. Um, and I challenged myself, but you know, we, we've got a day job to do with attack. It's not a spare force element. And he said, sir, I just want to do this for a few weeks because I want to be able to look the guardsman in the eye and say, I've done what you've done. And I can now insist on the highest possible battlefield standards. Mm. It was the best run patrol base for the two weeks that he was there. But tragically, there was green on blue, one note about he was killed by one of the uh, Afghan policemen, along with um, other members of the TAC, and a lot were injured. So that, to me, was an example of, of, of leadership by example. Um, he didn't need to do that, but he felt, as a soldier, he had to look his guardsmen in the eye, and they needed to trust him. Mm. That's why he found himself doing what he was doing. What a Sorry. great man. What, what a great example of, you know, as you rightly say, sir, leading by example, and, and that real critical thing of maintaining values and standards, even when no one else is watching. Doing the right thing when no one else is around, absolutely critical. He's the most inspirational leader from history and why? It's probably a well-known one, and I don't know enough about him, but I think it's, and it may be more myth, but the story of, of it, I think, is so inspiring. Um, and it's Ernest Shackleton and the extent to which he went to do the right thing for his ship's company in the most extraordinarily adverse circumstances. So it's the story of Shackleton. I'm sure there are others who can challenge the myth of it. And I'm well aware that his expedition from 1914 to 1917, there was something else going on in the world. Um, and a lot of felt, people felt that, you know, what he was doing down there, jolly interesting, but actually was wrong-headed. But, but just the, the purity of his, of his, of the story that is told about his leadership, I would say that genuinely inspiring. What's your most valuable leadership lesson you've learned and why? To keep talking to people. So, you know, if, you're, if your job is to, as a commander, is to make decisions, the more you talk to people, the easier the decisions become. Therefore, organize your day as a commander around decision making and using your time to talk to as many people about as many things as you possibly can so that when you do make the decisions, they're as easy as they can be for you. I mean, it's a trite thing to say, but as a battle group commander, as a commanding officer, if you find yourself tapping on a computer, then you know, you're not talking, really. It's an easy thing to say. And there are conversations that you have over emails and so on and so forth. But being, I mean, I guess the other, the other valuable lesson I learned is that I always have as a commander is that you're, you are your own recce officer you've got to get out there and find it out for yourself. Often that means going upwards in terms of into your superior headquarters so you really understand commander's intent and your partner plan. Often it's going to your flanking formations or flanking units in order to understand quite what they're going through so you can correctly contextualize your part in the plan. Obviously in my experience in Afghanistan, I was talk to Afghans every day because they know more about the situation than you do. So I think it's, it's the keep talking to people because your job is to make decisions. How, how, how do you organise your day so you're able to make the best possible decisions at your level? And yeah, that's good. Don't, don't, try and, don't try and operate in isolation. I think it's probably 
Uh, so, so very finally then, um, with hindsight, which is always a wonderful thing, what would you tell a young Rayleigh Walker as he came through the gates at Sandhurst to start the commissioning course and his journey to where you are now? Take it seriously, but, but wear the responsibility lightly. People want to know that you're at ease with your responsibility. They want to know that you can make the monsters go away. Even if, as I sit here, sort of 51, advising the government on military policy, I'm still that young Riley Walker who walked into Sanders on day one. I'm, I'm still exactly the same person. I've just had a few more life experiences. And at each job, there is that <laughs> risk of the imposter syndrome coming in because it's the first time you've done it. But everyone wants to know that you can do it. So that's it. Take it seriously, but, but wear it lightly if you can. Brilliant. General, thank you so much for your time. Very conscious that you're an incredibly busy man, but also very grateful for the time you've taken to tell us and give us an insight into what it takes to get to where you are and the things you're having to do. Thank you so much. Another fascinating insight into the leadership experiences of one of the Army's most senior officers. General Walker underpinned three critical facets of what turns good leaders into great ones. Firstly, the concept of trust. Across the British Army, trust is rooted deeply within mission command. General Rowley discussed how one's responsibility as a leader is to build trust, which in turn engenders confidence, collective endeavour and loyalty within one's troops. Secondly, he went on to emphasise that leaders should never try to operate in isolation. One must use the team around you, listen to their experience and ideas, talk to them, gain their opinions and allow them to challenge your thinking, all of which will help inform your own decisions. Speaking and engaging with one's team and those around you is vital to the success of making the right decision. Finally, in tune with knowing oneself and one's people, General Rowley explained how he had immersed himself in getting to know the DNA of each new organisation he joined. This demonstrates the lesson that one must take the time to understand and get to know what the organisation stands for, which in turn will allow you to reinforce your ethos and the collective culture which is affected most by the people within it. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, do please subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. For more information on British Army leadership and to get in touch with anyone on the team, please visit our website and of course follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.